Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. Today we have with us a gentleman who, like me, is a uh, very active, passive investor in real estate. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Visor. We will speak to him about both. Super smart guy. Heard him on another podcast. He is Latan Yahav, coming to us from the amazing country of Israel. Latan, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me yeah. on the show. You got it, Latan. So uh, you and I discussed this a little bit before we hit record, but for the sake of the audience, uh, where does the Latan story start? What's what's the background of Latan Yahav? Sure. So background goes back to Santa Monica, Los Angeles. That's where I was born. Uh, moved when I was nine years old. My parents packed me and my brother up, took us on a trip around the world. The first stop was Israel, and we've been here ever since. So. <laughs> That's a, that's a quick background. Um, so in Israel, I went to school here in Tel Aviv, went to the Navy. In Israel, everyone finishes high school and mandatory military service. Men do three or used to do three and women did, th- did two. It's all changed now, but that's uh, how it was when I got drafted shit 23 years ago. <laughs> I'm 41 years old and married. I have three kids. Uh, so back then, Navy six years. And then after that, went to school, studied law and business. Founded a startup back in 2012 in a very crazy industry, in the diamond and jewelry industry, and um, scaled that, sold it in 2015, made some money. Me and my co-founder have been investing over the period of the past eight years uh, through different types of managers, GPs, operators, mainly in private equity real estate in the U.S., in Europe. That's quick rundown of the of my background. Tell me where you want to dive into. Well, th- this is not a political podcast, but I'm going to ask the question. It's a weird question. You, you, we can, we can, we can dwell on this or not. Do you think, cause you, you were in the Navy, do you think Orthodox should have to serve in the military? So first of all, you can ask me anything. All right. And okay. on, that okay. subject, on that subject, I think that service for someone who's not you is important everywhere. Now there are non-Orthodox who don't serve in the military but they do some other sense of social service. And I do think that everyone in Israel should do some type of social service, either military or something else. The problem is with the Orthodox in Israel is that they get paid to not serve and to go to school, many of them. And that's sort of when you think about people risking their lives or risking or going and spending three years or two years of whatever of serving their country and only serving their country, not serving themselves in any way, that sucks and creates uh, an inequality in the country. I did not know that they got paid. That's interesting. What's the what's the thinking behind that? So back when Israel was founded in, in 48, in the early 50s, there was a small population of Orthodox Jews. And because Israel was found, Israel is based on the foundation of a Jewish country, these Orthodox Jews, I don't I might be doing history wrong here, but the overall aspect is that there is a belief that 
Orthodox Jews will pray for the country of Israel. That in turn protects the country in addition to the military. And those select few who go and pray get paid from the government to do so. Now, I might be doing like, I might be exaggerating on how that's all painted, but the fact is that there are people that get a salary to go and study Judaism. These are Orthodox Jews. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah it doesn't no, make sense, I, but, 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 but that's sort of what it, what it is. Well, I mean, look, it makes me think that I should, uh, up my game. I should, I should become Orthodox and move and, and, and depending on the pay, it sounds like a good gig. Um, I like that. And I'm not saying uh, that all Orthodox are like that, right? There are a lot of Orthodox that serve. There are a lot of Orthodox that contribute, but there's this, there's still a lot that don't. I see. All right. Well, I don't think too many people listening to this are that interested, so we'll move on. But I, I was obviously. Um, what, did, what did you do? That's curious to me. And I, I did hear you talk about that again when I heard you on the Wealth Podcast. Um, what did you do in the diamond industry? Yeah, so this is um, an interesting story. So I was, when I went to school, studied law and business, I went to this college here in Israel where the last year of college, I got into this program, which was funded by Sam Zell, uh, who unfortunately recently passed away. And this program, the idea behind it is uh, bringing together a group of 20 people across all faculties and finding a problem to solve or a business to build. And doing the, and I got into this program, uh, with these amazing people and, and we were looking to a business to, problem to solve and found ourselves interviewing people from different industries. And at some point interviewing the diamond industry and found this crazy old fashioned archaic industry and decided that we should bring some innovation to this industry, w- which was really dependent on relationships, family businesses, flying across the world with diamonds, shipping diamonds around the world for inspection. Just really crazy way things work. But on the flip side, it's the most highly secure industry that I've ever seen in my life. Even more secure than the military, like really crazy security. And so like we said, well, this doesn't make any sense. Let's build a technology around solving problems in this industry. And through that, built a a technology company aimed for helping diamond dealers, traders, manufacturers trade their merchandise around the world, a B2B play without physically shipping them for inspection. And we can dive in different aspects of that. But at the end of the day, we built this machine. It's like a microwave machine. You put a diamond in and it photographs it from hundreds of different angles and creates a 3D image, which then the dealer can send that image to a potential buyer on the other side of the world instead of shipping it to that potential buyer. There's a lot of you know risk and opportunity costs involved in shipping diamonds. Instead of doing that, it's in an image and you can send it to multiple people at the same time. It creates a lot of efficiency and transparency. So, so that's, you know, that's the, bit, the, the fundamental of, of that company. That sounds ingenious. What kind of penetration did you ultimately get? I mean, I guess, first of all, who are the, who are the clients? Are they manufacturers? Are they... Are they retailers and what kind of market penetration did you get? It sounds like you'd solved a huge problem, probably saved a lot of cost. Yeah, well, I'll answer the second part. So yeah, so today, after we sold the company um, eight years ago and, and joined forces with a large e-commerce website in the US, we're produ- like, there's almost no diamond in the world that is not photographed with us. So we photograph almost all diamonds in the world today. Um, so when you go online and search for a diamond to buy, it, it'll probably... 80% be photographed by us. So there was massive penetration, but it did, it was really difficult and it took us time. Our customers were manufacturers and dealers. 
and now not many people know, but a diamond, after it's polished, goes is traded at least four or five times before it reaches a consumer. And that trade, that B2B aspect of it, is where we focused. And so we had diamond, we had um, uh, offices in the diamond exchanges around the world where people traded diamonds and manufactured diamonds. And that's where we offered a service for people to bring us their diamonds. We'd photograph them with our machines, upload them to our website, and then they'd set a link instead of shipping the diamond. That's so smart. How big did it get? And you can answer that however you want, whether it be revenues, you know, how many of these, how many of these, um, did you sell, et cetera? Like what just general, what was the scope? So we didn't sell the machines. We offered it as a service, like a lab. Okay. Uh, and we had, when we, me and one of my co-founders decided to move on in 2018, where we were 250 employees, uh, five or six offices around the world and basically doing around 7,000 diamonds a day in our machines. Uh, Unbelievable. Good for you. My goodness gracious. How, how much money did it take to start? Um, very different than our, my current uh, journey. But when we started, we raised, we closed like an MOU for exclusivity in the B2C world. And that's like a, we can dive into that, but it's a whole agreement for exclusivity in a world we had no um, desire to be in. And then we raised like $80,000 just to build a prototype, no equity, just exclusivity. And then that same company that, that bought that exclusivity then invested half a million. And then a year and a half later, we raised another 750. And then we sold the company a year after that. So thank you for your patience. So you exit and then you start investing your money. So when you, you took business and law, does that mean you're a lawyer? No. So I didn't. So in Israel, when you finish law, you have to do a year of internship and then only then you can take the bar. And because I started Segom on the diamond company right after school, I decided to not go and do the internship and not take the bar. So I studied law, but I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to intern and, and take the bar. Got it. Okay. Tell me, uh, Latan, your, your kind of journey in passive, uh, in investing, you know, what, what have you learned and uh, what has the experience been? The good, bad, the ugly. First of all, I, I've learned that being passive is an objective for me, but I want to be passive and still get the benefits, the risk or, or the risk return of investing in real estate and private equity and look for those high double digit IRRs, but being passive. And so, but I only learned that like past few years, like when we got off, when we got this money, we had this windfall and it's like, what do we do now? And you get approached by a bunch of different people wanting to manage your money. And we decided to invest in real estate. And how do you invest in real estate? In Israel, you know, a guy or someone who does real estate has a, as a, either they find deals or they raise money as syndications or funds. And we just started to meet with more and more people in Israel. At some point, bought two single family homes in the U.S. remotely, not without ever seeing them. It came with, you know, Remax is a property management firm managing it. And at the same time, we invested in a few syndications as LPs with people we knew, like good friends of ours. And while doing both of those investments, sort of that was our first learning curve as, as passive investors, understanding we want to be passive and being a single family even having a property management firm, but single family investor was just a lot of work for us. And, you know, as the, as the months went by and, and 
tenants had to be evicted and properties needed to be fixed and municipalities reaching out to us, just asking us to fix stuff. It was like, damn, this is a mess. We're making better returns on the syndications and we're not doing anything. Why do we want to stay in these? And we just dropped those, only sold them off like a year or two ago and went double down on being a passive LP in these funds and syndications. So that was where, where were the, where were those houses? Ohio, the suburb of Cleveland. That's where I'm from. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> where about? I, so these were in Maple Heights and and Euclid. Okay, so Maple Heights is where I was born, but uh, we moved when I was six months old. So and that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but no, you know what? I can tell you that was a stupid thing to do, but I've done the same thing myself. And, and I don't even live, I mean, and I live in the country. And uh, at one point we bought like 14 homes in, in Buffalo and similar neighborhoods. And uh, by the time I got out, I was upside down several hundred thousand dollars. We paid cash and on and on and on. But this is not my podcast. It's, it's this is we're we're interviewing you here. So I've seen that movie. You were smart enough to only buy a couple. So what kind of investments did you make in, in uh, multifamily? Well, I mean, you know, I'm saying it's multifamily. I don't know why I'm assuming exactly. that. I know you, no, what's that? Go ahead. You know, exactly. It's like everyone assumes if you invest in syndication, it's a multifamily, but I guess that's a predominant asset class in syndications because it, it used to be, I don't know if it's going to be in the future, but it used to be the most lucrative one, right? Because you'd get, yeah, multifamily value add aspect to it, BC class properties, you know, they usually have six, seven percent, eight percent cash on the cash, and then there's the upside, which is fifteen, seventeen, eighteen percent IRR, right? That's like the plain vanilla LP position in a syndication. And so that's what we started to do, right? So yeah, we did that uh with a group who does it who did it in Florida, we did it in Atlanta and Charlotte and Dallas, just with and honestly, we didn't really care about the asset class. We didn't even care about the the geography. Uh and I mentioned this also always. It's just like all we cared about was the people we invest with. They happen to be multifamily investors. They happen to be invest, investing in those, in those markets. And, you know, while doing that, learned a lot of stuff about things to ask and things to look into and what we're looking for in terms of passiveness. And we've done over the years multifamily. We've done storage units. We've done ground up development. We've done flips, a bunch of different stuff. You see, had multifamily storage flips. Ground up, and when you say ground up, ground up multifamily or ground up other stuff or both, both. Yeah, so we've done multifamily uh, buildings, single family homes, townhomes. We've also invested in, in Europe uh, a bit, and also have some lessons from there in terms of currency and stuff like that. But yeah, um, how many deals would you say you have invested? In? Well, first of all, how many sponsors? How many deals do you think, just roughly? So I think we've, we've invested with 12 different operators. I'd say today, probably 35 deals. That's a lot. Eight years. We've, we've written small checks and larger checks, but, uh, I, you know, obviously there are deals that ended and I was like, damn, why didn't we put more money in that deal (laughs) with that operator? But, and then I doubled down with that operator more and more. And I have operators that I've stopped to invest with. Uh, and so, yeah. Well, the operators you've stopped investing with, why? Well, actually, they weren't really operators. They were capital raisers. Okay. And we felt that we're at a point where we have enough connections, enough deal flow, and enough expertise to invest directly with the operators. Also, my preference is investing with smaller operators. 
and not the large ones. I think we mentioned that sort of pre-call, right? So I like we it did. When, when I know, when, when I have like a personal relationship with the to managing partners or the owners, because uh, that sort of, and this might be stupid psychological aspect, for me that creates a level of, of uh, I'd say trust that's very hard for me to build when I don't know the owner operator. And so those tend to be smaller operators, right? So for me to invest with Blackstone, right? Or, or is, you know, <laughs> that's like not going to happen probably. Also because of check sizes, but moreover because I prefer investing with smaller operators. And I know that, by the way, smaller operators are a higher risk as well because they don't have the expertise the bigger ones do. Um, but that's just, for me, trust is more important. That's such an interesting thing. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I've been really aggressive the last few years. Um, I first started like 20 years ago, but I, I invested with a sponsor in San Francisco who was a friend of a friend. And uh, I never took my money off the table. It's still there and it's done very, very well. And he's grown very, very large. But I can see what you're saying. You know what I mean? There's something to be said for access. And the other thing is where my mind goes is that w people that are smaller doing smaller deals, there's more inefficiency in smaller deals, depending on how small you're talking about. So therefore, if you got the, the right guy or woman, uh, the chances are, especially now where things have gotten so gridlocked, especially in multifamily, but really in all asset classes where there's just no deals anymore. Um, I mean, there are, but you get my drift. But smaller properties, there's more inefficiency. And so if you got the right person, maybe there's some better deals out there. I just invested in a deal in New Hampshire with a guy that's special. All he does is multifamily in Manchester, New Hampshire. Small, but you know what? I mean, that's all they do. And there's a lot of risk that gets mitigated there. Uh, what's so interesting is nobody's ever said that to me on this podcast. That's so interesting. In terms of like when you write a big check, what's a big check in for, you, for you with a sponsor or a deal? I haven't invested more than $200,000 in one deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I did put 250 in one deal and I wish like hell I hadn't done it for a whole host of other reasons. Not the size of the check, by the way, but every other reason on earth. And then I wish I wouldn't have put the amount of money in because of all the other reasons. But so interesting. Uh, so you're in with 12 operators. Are you going to narrow that field? Do you anticipate, or are you comfortable with the twelve? And it, you know, you'll you you would invest in any or all of them because the relationships are that solid and the performance and communication has been that strong. So I think no. So it's it's, it's not twelve anymore. I'm just saying overall, I've invested with twelve. Like I said, I've narrowed that down already with those that I, I don't want to invest with again. But. I have eyed out some other operators I'd want to invest with. And it's only a matter for me of liquidity and numbers of a deal that, that'll come on the table. Because these are smaller operators, they don't have a deal every, every, you know, every other week. And, you know, because of the period in time, it's also a lot harder to find good deals. And, you know, when, when interest rates, when like risk free interest rates are so high, it's also hard, you know, the, the, the deals need to make amazing sense from a risk return perspective that they make sense to deploy into. But, but back to your question, that's a long answer to a short question. Yes, I would, I definitely would expand my operator list and invest with more. And then how do you identify, is it, you know, sponsors and um, like you said, you're, you're actually shrinking the size. I understand that, but, but if you're thinking longer term, 
what's the process or is it just organic and it's just being in the, in the weeds every day and, you know, one thing leads to the next or is there a process around it? I wouldn't say it's a process, but I do put myself around people that are in, in the world of, of wealth creation that either from the supply side or the demand side. And once you're around those types of people, you learn a lot, but you also get access to a lot of really interesting stuff. And so I actively put myself in those mastermind groups and those, those communities. Some of those communities I pay a fee to be part of. And I feel that being in those communities also creates a very high level of trust and integrity between the people in those communities. So the chance of someone in a community where you pay a lot of money to be part of and reputation is, is important. The chances of something in that community screwing you over is very low, especially when you reach a very high level of personal connection with people in those communities. Hmm. Uh, so what kind of mastermind did it see? See, I thought like that the masterminds were, was largely, those were largely how, how to, you know, how to invest in this asset class, how to raise money. I didn't know that there were master classes that the, the forum was made sense for guys like you and me just deploying capital. So maybe give me a little color on that. So it's not a master class, it's a mastermind group. So for example, you've- I'm, probably, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. But I'll give you like the, the biggest example of a community like this. You've probably heard of YPO, right? Of course. So YPO is, is a type of organization where like-minded people come together and become better executives, become better business people, become better people. That's YPO. And like YPO, there are a bunch of other organizations and communities that aren't around the business necessarily, but around the personal or the wealth creation. Uh, there's one called Tiger 21, which is, you know, a community of people that have above $20 million. There's a community that I'm part of called GoBundance, which is a community for people with $2 million and up, but also a different type of mindset. And there's a community, there, there are a bunch of these communities. Uh, there's a, there's an, there's an investor community called Left Field Investors, which I really like. And, and so there's a bunch of these communities. Some of them cost money and some of them don't, but it's all around helping each other become better. The different aspects in our lives, right? And so, and I found that in these communities, it's like everyone is a very similar mindset. Everyone is really keen to helping each other out, not screwing each other over. Although the larger the community gets, the higher the chances of that happening. And you need to be diligent and, and, and careful, but, but still it creates that initial level of trust, what I found. So like I joined GoBundance around two and a half years ago and I've invested with a few guys in the group already. And what, what did you say? And I've invested with a few guys within the group. I see. Okay. So GoBundance is broader than just real estate. It's like you said, it's people who make over 2 million bucks, probably broader business interest, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Got it. And does that one cost money or no? It does. Yeah, it costs quite a bit okay. as well. I see. Uh, do you guys have any in-person meetings? Yeah, there are a lot of in-person meetings. They're like these biannual big events where it's, it's like, I think about 900 people at the moment. And so these events, are, you know, a few hundred people each of these events and they have regional events and local events. I got it. Your asset class, you didn't say this, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I got is your, your asset class and market neutral. It's all about the, the, the person. It's about the sponsor. A hundred percent. Like, yeah. And yeah, people, again, it's about, it's about the person and then about the numbers. If the numbers match my strategy, like for example, I might find someone I trust a lot that will not screw me over. And they do multifamily deals, right? 
or let me put it there, they do, they do, they do developing deals and developing deals are higher risk, higher reward, right? If the numbers on a deal they send me aren't, don't match what I'd expect from a ground up development deal and match more something that's lower risk or, 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 or yeah, lower risk, then the numbers don't match it for me. And I probably won't invest in a deal like that. Right. So like if, for, if you put, just put numbers on that. So if, if I invest in a development deal, I want to see 25, 30% IRR plus. And it needs to be about a year and a half, two and a half years max, right? Whereas if you invest in a multifamily deal, you know it's going to be five to seven years and you're going to see 15%, 16% IRR, especially in times like this. And so if the numbers don't, don't, don't match that sort of criteria, then I might trust the operator. I'm not saying it's, he's, he's, he's lying to me. I'm just saying the deal just doesn't make sense for me. Yeah. No, I, I'll tell you in my uh, experience, I don't think I've ever flat out gotten, let's say, screwed using that term where there were ethics involved. Where I've gotten screwed, it's because of just some incompetence. And at the end of the day, if I lose my money, I lose my money. It doesn't matter if, it, if it's an issue of, of ethics or incompetence, you still lose your money. Not that there aren't people out there that would very much enjoy stealing my money, but I've been lucky and haven't encountered any. But um, tell me this, you uh, very smartly created a uh, a product, a uh, software product uh, visor. And uh, my understanding is it's, it's an efficiency tool that it's a, it's kind of a centralized platform for all of your investments. I'm sure I've done a miserable job explaining it, but maybe uh, you can tell me the the origins of it and what it does and, and how that's going. Well, first of all, if you're like me, you got to try it, all right? So I think you get a better sense for it, but I'll give you the gist of it. So yeah, so we 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 started investing about eight years ago. And like I mentioned, over a year, over the years, we found that we want to be more and more passive. And we found that the more we invest, the less passive we are because it just becomes a whole job to manage it all. Uh, I'd get an email from a, from an operator or a GP and say, Oh, damn, like who is this and how much do I invest with this guy? And then money in my bank account going in and out and multiple bank accounts. And oh, damn, what's this money? And these are good problems to have, right? But it didn't make any sense. And, you know, updating spreadsheets and the spreadsheets breaking and formulas and going into emails and different investor portals and documents, just a mess. And so we decided, screw that. Let's just go build something for ourselves, me and my co-founder to manage and automate the whole process. And so we hired an engineer and we started to build ourselves this product to manage our own stuff. I wanted to see all my investments, everything, all my net worth, all my cash flow, link in my bank accounts, track all that stuff. And then when we started to do that, a bunch of friends wanted as well. And we said, wait, there might be a whole business here. And, and you know, started to reach out to a lot of people like us around the world, specifically in the US, and found that there's just nothing out there to serve people like us. And so we built Advisor for people like us. And the idea basically is keep passive investing passive. So that email I'll get from my operator, I'll just forward it to Advisor or they'll be CC'd on it. Uh, or they'll have access to my investor portal. My bank accounts will be linked to Visor so that all the transactions in my bank accounts are automatically linked to the investments. And then, you know, everything else as well, my brokerage accounts, my retirement accounts, my everything, my cash accounts. And then also understanding sort of what's my cash and how I'm going to look in the future. Because, you know, when you invest in these different deals, you have different expectations, right? 
This is supposed to generate 7% cash on cash distributed every quarter. This is supposed to have cash every, every month. This one has capital calls coming up and just project my cash flow moving forward and understanding and be prepared for scenarios was just really hard. So we, that's basically what it is about. And there's one more aspect, which is a cool aspect that, that I, I, I mean, when we built it, we like, we had to get to this as fast as possible. We only got to it like a few months ago. And this aspect is showing our customers where other people are investing anonymously, like how people allocate their money from an asset allocation standpoint, but also which GPs funds are people investing in, in each asset class and more information on each of those funds. Uh, and it's unbiased, right? Because we don't get anything. Our investors don't get anything. It's all just like based on actual investments and anonymous. So that's the gist of like what Pfizer is about. Hmm. Uh, my wife would, is dying for something like this because, you know, come K1 time. And it's funny because all of these, all of these, you know, sponsors are in my mind. I'm kind of, you know, my mind is slipping a little bit as I get older, but yet it's an iron effing trap when it comes to where my money is. No, no, no. <laughs> I know every effing penny, but she doesn't know. Right. So it gets really frustrating for her. And I'm like, I, I, I told you that this, sponsor is this asset. I put, you've asked me nine times and, and it frustrates the hell out of her. So this would be perfect for us. And then the other thing is she's always, she's been saying for years, you know, we need one person to handle everything because, you know, like you have brokerage, you accumulate things over the years. You have this brokerage account. I have my IRA with this guy, my blah, 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 blah. And it is all in my mind, but yet she, she's the deals with our accountant. And so anyway, uh, this is perfect. And I am going to follow up afterwards and, 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 um, and demo this. You said I could ask you anything, but uh, if you feel comfortable answering this, fine. If not, that's fine too. About how many people are on the platform at this point? We have about 3,000 people on the platform at the moment. Oh my God, man. No kidding. Jeez. How much does it cost? So it co at the moment, it costs flat fee of $950 a year or $100 a month. Uh, but we're changing the whole model within the next week and a half. So there's going to be a free version up to a limited amount of assets. And then there's going to be a $30 a month paid annually. And there's going to be the 80 paid annually. And then there's going to be a more like family office type service, which will have more stuff on it, which will cost $700 a month. And that's like mm. complete full service support. But that's how much it costs. Yeah. Fantastic, man. That's so, just absolutely ingenious. And so there's nothing out there like this tool. So there's about 1500 budgeting apps in the US, companies that help you sort of understand your spend on supermarkets and, you know, travel and stuff like that, which is super important. That's where most of the market is. And then when you go up a little and you have the complexity that, that you and I have, which are good problems to have, you don't really have anything. Like you have spreadsheets or you can pay someone to do it for you, a personal assistant or virtual assistant, whatever you want. And then there's like very high end stuff, you know, for, tier one multifamily office stuff, which are really $70,000 a year products that take forever and a day to implement. Uh, and so, yeah, in our world, there's, there's just nothing. Mm. Ingenious. Do, do you have, uh, is it fully auto? Well, yes, of course it's fully automated, but do you have employees or do you not need full-time employees? This no, of course. Yeah, we have full-time employees. We have a team for customer success and, you know, engineers and product and design were VC backed. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a whole new startup. I went back into the game. 
Okay, I got it. I got it. Dumb question. So I, the one thing I know nothing about in life, well, there are many things, but one of them is technology. So so hence the stupid <laughs> question. But yeah, so it sounds like it solves, it's a solve for a brilliant, very common conundrum that, that people have. Tell me this, in terms of your, your inspiration, what are, what would you say is, uh, is there a book that you've read recently or ever that had the greatest impact on you? I just haven't found a book yet that overcomes the, the book that I've read, you know, multiple times, one after the other. It's called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss about negotiation and just how negotiation, every aspect in our lives from, you know, waking up in the morning and getting my kids ready for school through negotiating with investors about the next funding round. It's just like everything's negotiating and the skills and insights from that book are just like incredibly valuable. So that's like, Super influential book. Wow. Okay. I, I have heard of it, but I've not read it. That's a that's a, an amazing endorsement. Uh, is there a podcast that is your favorite podcast or do you listen to podcasts? This might sound like a generic answer, but How I Built This, Guy Raz's podcast, probably familiar with that. It's, it's just a great, great, he's a great host and it's super interesting stuff. It is indeed. It is indeed. Okay. If somebody were to want to find out more about you, engage you for any reason, I know you're not necessarily raising money for deals or, or what have you. Uh, how, how would one do that? Or if they wanted to find out advisor, whatever, whatever a, a next step would be for anybody in terms of what you would prefer. For sure. So, so visor is V Y Z E R dot C O. So it's a weird name, but that's what it is. Visor.co. And you can either email, email me at litan advisor.co. Litan is L-I-T-A-N or, or my Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm pretty responsive and I love connecting, especially with other LPs. Got it. Well, uh, Latan, I, I am impressed with what you're doing. I appreciate your time. What time is it there? It's a quarter to 10 p.m. Okay. It's, it's, okay. It's late. Uh, very, very much appreciated. Have a good rest of the week and uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, you got it. Talk to you soon. 